Good morning, everyone. Let me invite you to take your Bibles now and open to Mark chapter 5, where we're going to be focusing our study this morning. Uh, My name is Thomas Gardner, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Riverwood, and I'm thankful to be together uh, with you this morning to study God's Word. Uh, It is Mother's Day, and as Daniel said, uh, we certainly want to give thanks to the Lord this morning for our mothers who gave us life and who cared for us. Uh, We also want to recognize all of you this morning who have been called by God to the vocation of motherhood. Your work in raising your children in the Lord is not in vain. May you persevere faithfully and joyfully. Uh, And to those of you who maybe have desired motherhood, um, but God has not granted that to you, you still have a calling on your life to love and serve his church and his people. So recognize the goodness of God's calling on your life as well. Um, In Mark chapter 5, if you're joining with us, we're uh, studying through Mark's gospel. And um, one of the things that uh, is great about studying through books of the Bible verse by verse is that it leads you to, or really in many ways, forces you to study certain things that maybe would be easier pastorally to skip over, or it pushes you into difficult subjects. But what it also can do, if you're a pastor who doesn't look at the calendar, like the secular calendar, is it can lead to things like what we've got this morning. So if you've got your outline and you take a look, Happy Mother's Day, we're talking about demons. So... That's not a knock on any of your children or grandchildren. Um, we, we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 5, uh, Jesus' interaction with the Gerasene demoniac, a uh, man possessed by evil spirits. And so what we want to do this morning, before we jump into that, is do a little overview of wh- what are unclean spirits, what are demons, what does Scripture teach us about these beings, these creatures. We see, if you've got your outline, you can look there. We see that during Jesus's earthly ministry, he interacted with these entities or beings that in various places are referred to as unclean spirits or demons. In thinking about these things, we would do well to heed the words of C.S. Lewis. As we get and look at Scripture, one of the things C.S. Lewis said at the beginning of his book, The Screwtape Letters, he said this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We don't want to fall into either of those errors. We want Scripture to form our thinking on these things. And so when we do look in Scripture, we see, we recognize that these are spiritual beings who are personal in nature, meaning that they have personality. They, they exhibit intelligence. They are also evil in character. They oppose God and his work. From scripture what we see is we learn that they are fallen angels. A couple of passages, and I've given you some extra passages there within your outline that will help you uh, if you want to go and look at a little more detail. Also, any good systematic theology will really give you a good look at uh, this, usually within the main heading of angelology. We we see that uh, demons are, or unclean spirits are, fallen angels. In Jude 6, it says that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he, that's God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
So there's a reference in Jude 6 to these angels who in some way did something opposing God and they are then confined. So there is this understanding of there being some angels who oppose God. So you see that there are some that are confined, but clearly in Scripture there are some of these angels who are not confined. They're free and they're active. You see them very clearly within the Gospels. They're connected to and they serve Satan's rebellious ends. In Mark 3.22, again, Satan is referred to as the prince of demons. And they, along with Satan, they have their ultimate end end in the judgment of God. Look at Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So there is a group of angels that are associated with Satan in opposing God. Like we said, some seem to be confined. That's referenced in Jude and in 2 Peter. Many are loose and active in the world. In terms of their activities, they work to oppose God and the works of God. You see this very clearly in Acts 16, where there's a girl who is possessed by a demon, and she is following Paul around and greatly annoying him and detracting from the ministry. And it's always been funny to me that it says, Paul greatly annoyed turns and deals with this demonic spirit that's possessed this little girl. In Scripture, you see that demons also promote idolatry. In Psalm 106, it references false worship as associated with demons. They also promote false religion. In 1 John 4, there's a recognition that spirits will come and proclaim a Jesus who is not the true Jesus. They will not recognize Jesus as Lord and from God. You also see that demons as well, they are involved in afflicting certain maladies upon people. In the Gospels, you see this. But be careful that you don't fall into sort of our modern secular trap where they say, yeah, they thought all kind of sickness was demons back then because they were ignorant people. If you read in the Gospels, it's very clear when there's an affliction that is the result of demonic activity and when there's simply a disease. But we do see in the Gospels that demons can be involved in the affliction of certain maladies upon people. They also promote perversion. Satan cannot create anything he can only pervert good things that God has given and you see demonic activity in association with that the thing that we're dealing with this morning though is the idea of demonic possession which Charles Ryrie uh, he defines this way he says it is a demon residing in a person exerting direct control and influence over that person with certain derangement of mind and or body it's to be distinguished from demon influence or activity in relation to a person The work of the demon in the latter is from the outside. In demon possession, it is from within. By this definition, a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon since he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we think about these things this morning, and as we consider what we're going to see in Mark chapter 5, we need to recognize that demonic activity is real in the world, although it may not be overt in the way it is in Mark chapter 5. It's the great lie of our modern secular age is that there is only the physical. Only the things we see, touch, taste, smell, that only those things are real. But we need to recognize that there is demonic activity going on. And it's interesting if you read again in Lewis's screw tape letters, one of the things he points, uh, he just sort of observes, and I think he's exactly right. He kind of makes this little throwaway statement where he says, demons are nothing if not practical. Now let me just ask you, if there was a possessed person running around in North Park Mall acting the way the person that we're going to see in Mark chapter 5 is acting, do you think fewer or more people would go to church the next week? However, 
if they work in less overt ways, still overtly evil, but not manifesting in that sort of um, grotesque sort of way that we're going to see, they can still have influence and yet continue to drive people away. Yet you go into other more animistic cultures that recognize absolutely the power of spirits, then there's more gained within demonic activity for things to be more overt in the ways that you would see in Mark chapter 5. This morning, we are going to be looking at this account where Jesus interacts with a possessed man. The man in the demonized condition, he's extremely important in the account. We're going to learn some things from what we see happen. But the primary focus is on Jesus and how his power and authority are exercised in mercy on this man's behalf. On your outline there, our key point this morning, and remember that in Mark's, when Mark is writing this, he's not going on to chapter 5. This is a continuation, and so this account connects back to the prior account that we looked at last week with the calming of the storm. And so if you recall, if the calming of the storm caused the disciples to question who Jesus truly was, remember that's how it ends last week, we said? They, the, Jesus calms the storm, and they say, who the wind and the waves obey him? His encounter with the Gerasene demoniac, it gave the emphatic answer that Jesus was the son of the Most High God who had come to destroy the works of the devil and bring freedom to the captives. We're going to see Jesus showing mercy, exercising his power and authority on behalf of a man who was enslaved, ensnared by evil. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer, then we're going to read from Mark's gospel. Let's pray now. Father, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you uh, that I have the chance to be together with your people this morning and read it over them and then move through it and study it with them. Father, would you use your word in our lives and our hearts? Would your spirit be free among us to teach us? Lord, I thank you that you have fed us this morning through having the word uh, seen in the Lord's table uh, you fed us through the person and work of Jesus. Now, Father, I pray that you would feed us through the study of the scriptures. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 5, excuse me, verses 1 through 20. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met a man, there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word to us this morning as his people. I want to do a little bit with geography here. Jesus and the disciples have been on the Sea of Galilee. We saw last week that Jesus had told them after teaching he wanted to go across to the other side. And so he does. He comes into an area that Mark refers to as the country or region of the Gerasenes. Now, it's important here to recognize this region, this area on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus crossed over. He and his followers come to an area that's primarily inhabited by Gentiles. That's an important thing for us to recognize. This is an area that's part of a region referred to as the Decapolis It's it's centered around 10 major cities within this area. Now, this name is interesting. It says he comes into the region of the Gerasenes. Here's our our map, kind of, of what we're looking at here. This is the Decapolis. All of the cities of the Decapolis are not mentioned on this map. But there was a large city. One of the most prominent cities was a city called Gerasa here. And so it's interesting that when you consider this along with Matthew's account. Matthew doesn't say he goes to the regions of the Gerasenes. He locates it in a country or an area called the region of the Gadarenes. There was another city called Gadara that was up here. I'll show you on this map here. So we've got, well, my map cut off, (laughs) okay? Gerasa was a city further down. It would have been down here in this area. Gadara was here up closer to the Sea of Galilee, but there's this little bitty small settlement up here, which is sort of the historic place where people believe this took place, okay? So the question is, well, why does Mark say it's in the region of the Gerasenes? Is he wrong? Do we have an error here in Scripture? No, what Mark is doing is he's doing something that we often do in an area where people don't know a lot about the local geography. Many times you'll pick a name for a place or a city that's representative of a region. Maybe you've had this issue if you live in Pocahontas, Mississippi, or Ridgeland, Mississippi, or Flora, Mississippi, and you tell people you're from there, and their eyes glaze over, and they have no idea what you're talking about, and you just say, I'm from Jackson. And they say, oh, okay, they kind of get it and smile and nod, all right? Mark, remember, Mark is not from this region, and he's writing primarily to Gentiles who are not going to know a ton about this region, but they may know something about these large Gentile cities in this area called the Decapolis, which was known within the Roman Empire. So Mark refers to this region as the region of the Gerasenes, but in all likelihood, this event takes place somewhere up near this small settlement called Gergesa. One of the reasons why we think that is because of the geography. There's reference to these pigs going off of a cliff. And around the Sea of Galilee, this is the main area where you have some cliff regions or areas near the sea. Okay? Also, what we found is in this area near Gergesa, it's a modern-day uh, city of Al-Khasi, uh, or Al-Kursi, it, the, we, there, re, there are ruins of a Byzantine church that's built in like the 4th century. So clearly... Within a few centuries of these events happening, 
Somebody thought it was a good idea to put a Christian church there. So all these things kind of come together to lead us to think that this is probably the region that Jesus, where this event occurs. R.T. Francis' statement, I think, is helpful. He says, Mark's Gerasenes, therefore, probably represents either a loose use of the term generally for the whole Decapolis, of which Gerasa was a leading city, or simply a confusion of similar terms, the better known substituting for the obscure Gargessa. All right, so that's a little bit of geography background that I think gives us something to see. This is, when Jesus comes across, he's seeing something similar to this. Don't know that this is the exact location or the exact picture, but I just want you to have in mind when Jesus, when the ship arrives on the shore and Jesus begins to disembark or immediately the man comes to him, this is sort of the geography of the place. All right, now looking at your next uh, bullet point there, having come ashore, Jesus is confronted by a man who's possessed by an unclean spirit. Now that description that we read about him, and it's, it's very extensive there, telling you about the man, I think there's three things we can observe about his condition. Okay, the first is that the man lived in a state of perpetual defilement. Perpetual defilement. He's possessed by a spirit that is referred to as an unclean spirit. Remember, we've seen that word, we've talked about that, how that's used in reference to def- of defilement. Look at where he's living as well. He's living amongst tombs. You were rendered ritually unclean in Jewish thinking and in accordance with the Jewish law if you were around dead bodies, if you were even in areas where dead bodies were. So tombs, you did not want to go to a tomb unless you were burying a relative. That was the only reason that you would go to a tomb. So you see that this man, he exists in a state of sort of perpetual defilement, and he's in a land where people are herding pigs. Jews didn't have barbecues. They didn't, have, they didn't throw racks of ribs on, on the grill. They did not eat pigs. It was, a, it was an unclean animal. And so they're in this region where these Gentiles have herds of pigs. So there's, again, it's telling you something about this place where this man lives. The other thing that you see is that no one possessed the strength or ability to restrain this man. They, they've tried to. They've attempted to gain control of him. He clearly possesses unnatural strength because of the demonic possession. He's uncontrollable. He's out of control. Look at the way he's described. He's crying out all night and day in the tombs. There's no way. He can't control himself, and no one else can control him. I think the third thing to observe is that the man was isolated from the community of his people. He's cast out in many ways from amongst his people. He's living in this place of the tombs. They consider him a threat and a nuisance, and so he's cut off. Now, it's interesting, in Matthew, Matthew mentions that there are two men. It says that there's two men here in this account. Mark only mentions one because what Mark is doing is he's keying in on Jesus' interaction with this one man. Clearly, what occurred is that there were two men, but there's one man who's primarily the one that Jesus interacts with. And maybe, and Matthew, writing later than Mark, comes in and says, actually, there was another guy there too. Mark's just giving you the focused-in account of Jesus' interaction with the primary man, maybe the one who comes and confronts Jesus. So what we have here, though, think about what Jesus is doing. In many ways, this is the key point. In many ways, this man is representative of the spiritual condition of this entire region. He represents the spiritual condition of this entire region of people. It's filled with pagans. It's filled with idolaters. They're involved in the worship, ultimately, of demons in their pagan idolatry. 
They're, again, there's pigs everywhere. They, they are very much living in a way that's hostile towards what God has revealed in his word. And so I need you to see that what Jesus is doing here is he's invading enemy territory. He very intentionally says, we're going over to this spot. And I'm sure the disciples initially were like, that's not a great idea. And Jesus says, this is where we're going. But you've got to remember, this is right after he's calmed the storm, so they're really, really terrified of him right now. So if he says we're going over here, they're just rowing. They're going where he says to go. And so see that this is Jesus invading enemy territories, coming to the place that's defiled. And that's so beautiful because in the Jewish mindset, holiness was something that you were able to guard in yourself through your own actions, and God is holy, and you had to keep things away from the tabernacle and the temple so that you didn't defile those spaces. And what we have is God incarnate, the one who's, de- who's proclaimed holy, holy, holy by the angels. He's coming into the unclean place. He's coming into the place. He's bringing his holiness into this place that is unclean. So you then have the account focus in. It focuses in on how Jesus interacts with the unclean spirit. And clearly, it's interesting there when you get in those verses, it seems like Jesus has already been speaking to the man, okay, or in speaking to the spirit. And the focus really is on, the man is sort of a secondary character, The focus is on Jesus' interaction with the unclean spirits here in the things that he discusses. Now notice, though, that the man's posture before Jesus, he comes out, he fell down before him. His posture before Jesus was a recognition of his authority as the Son of God, of the Most High God. So you see, the demon comes and the demon, through the man, bows down before Jesus and cries out, screams out, what have you to do with us? And then he properly identifies Jesus. Note that, again, in the connection between the two passages, the disciples have asked, who is this guy? The demon comes, bows down before him, and rightly and properly identifies who Jesus is. He is the son of the Most High God. What we see here then, this is not the demons bowing in homage and worship. It's compelled submission to Jesus' power and authority. The demon cannot but bow before the power and authority of the Son of God. And so this is, this is a thing that's just illustrating Jesus' power here and the way the demon responds. And it's also, again, it's a stinging indictment of the Pharisees and the religious leaders who have accused Jesus of acting by the power of Satan. And here we have a demonic being bowing before him and recognizing who he truly is. The concern that the demon seems to have is that Jesus has come to bring judgment upon them. The phrase he uses is torment. And it's thick with irony because what have these demons been doing to this man? They've been tormenting him. And yet they're terrified that Jesus has come to bring judgment upon them or torment them. And it's interesting there then, this gets to one of the reasons why theologians think that there are a percentage or group of demonic beings, fallen angels, who are in a place of judgment even now. You see this again uh, in Second Peter and in Jude. It seems like these demons are very concerned that Jesus may send them there. They don't want to go there. They don't want to experience this, quote-unquote, before the time. Okay? They, don't, they understand that there's judgment coming, but they certainly don't want to receive anything prior to that. And so there's a fear of Jesus. They're, uh, they're afraid of what he's going to do. 
We then see Jesus speaking to them and exercising his authority over the demons in order to deliver the man from their their control. Jesus asked the demon, he says, he asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then he begged earnestly not to send them out of the country. It's interesting that we have the demon vocalizing through the man here, interacting with Jesus, and Jesus addressing the demonic creature. Jesus doesn't need to identify himself. The demon well and truly knows who Jesus is. And in light of that authority, this is, there's some really weird intertestamental writings about exorcism and things like that in Jewish thought. And there was this idea that the use of the name was how you gained authority over someone. And that actually is a biblical concept, the authority to name. I mean, God is the ultimate authority. He names the man Adam. He delegates his authority. You see Adam naming his wife Eve. It's a picture of authority. So you, it's, it could be, and commentators have pointed this out, that maybe this demon by addressing Jesus is attempting to sort of exercise authority over him, and yet that clearly does not work. It's Jesus who commands that he be given the demon's name. So the demon responds and says, we are, our, my name is Legion, for we are many. Jesus commands, he exercises authority, he's showing his authority over this spirit being who is possessed this man. And again, then, point two there, they begged Jesus to allow them to enter a herd of pigs, which he did. And so notice that. They are recognizing his authority, they're begging him of something, and it uses the phrase, he gave them permission. The Greek word there is weird, you could say he commanded them, he spoke. Either way, it's an exercise of his authority. And if you're reading that and you're like, that is super weird, I'm with you, okay? It's very, we don't understand a ton about this. Why, are, why do they ask to do this? Why does Jesus grant them permission to do it? Can demons possess animals? It seems clear that there's something connected there. The point, though, is, the, is what occurs, Jesus gives permission for this, and it says the unclean spirits came out, they come out of the man, and they enter the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. That's a lot of pigs. And then the, 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 the herd rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, the question is, do the demons drown the pigs, or... Is that an exercise of Jesus' authority in destroying them? The text isn't super clear. If this destruction is the demons doing it, it's possibly, some commentators have pointed out, that their goal was ultimately to destroy the man that they were possessing, and Jesus has now delivered this man. And so there's this goal then for them still to destroy some part of God's creation. So they destroy this herd of pigs. It could also be, though, that the destruction of this herd is is sort of a a picture of Jesus actually bringing judgment upon these demons. It's hard to know exactly. It doesn't say that they killed the pigs and then the demons, you know, were free to go. We don't get any further indication as to what that means. But, But here's the thing. If nothing else, the destruction of the pigs pictures something, okay? These animals that are unclean in this land have now been destroyed. These unclean spirits that have filled this man, they've been cast out. So don't miss the big picture here. The key point, I think, is in the exercise of his authority, Jesus effected a cleansing of both the man and the land. 
It's Jesus exercising his authority in order to cleanse from defilement, which is what he's been doing from the beginning. But he's been doing that in these religious Jewish areas. Here he's doing it in a Gentile region. Now, to be sure, there were probably some Jews that lived within this area, but in all likelihood, these are Gentiles. So what we see here, look at uh, David Garland, I think in his theology of Mark's gospel is really good. He says, from a Jewish perspective, the pig's plunge into the sea is fully merited. A human being is cleansed, and impure spirits and unclean animals are both wiped out. In many ways, this whole thing, again, it's sort of a lived parable. Jesus is cleansing what is defiled. Messiah has come to destroy Satan's works, having already overcome Satan in the temptation at the beginning of his ministry. Now he's on the offensive. He's going into Satan's territory, and he's bringing deliverance to those held captive. Now, the response of the people in the region is, and the man, that, that's really where the account comes in, and this is where you land the plane and looking at what Mark is getting at in this. So the people of the region, they responded to the exercise of Jesus' power with fear and suspicion. They're not sure about this guy. In fact, they're actually afraid of him. You see that they come, the herdsmen, after they see this happen, they go to the city and they tell everybody what's happened. People come out, they see the demon-possessed man or formerly demon-possessed man sitting there and, and they are trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Okay, a couple of observations. The results of, their, of Jesus' powerful works within their midst caused them to be afraid. Caused them to be afraid. You could translate that word filled with fear. It's actually the exact same word that's used of the disciples in verse 41. If you go back up to the end of the prior account with the disciples when they see Jesus calm the storm, it's the same word that's used there. They're filled with fear, or you could translate it, they are afraid. When they see this man that they've known to be possessed, or at least they've known that he was a guy who was deeply troubled. He's sitting there in his right mind. And so they, are, they respond, that there's a highlight that's being drawn. The disciples were afraid of Jesus, but they're with Jesus. These people are afraid of Jesus, and they want Jesus gone. That's kind of the second observation. Rather than invite him to do more miraculous works among them, they asked him to depart from them which is crazy to think about. They preferred the prior situation with the possessed guy screaming all the time in the tombs that they can't bind. They prefer that to Jesus' exercise of his power and authority in their midst. And there's something there for us to think about that we'll come back to. But this also contrasts very sharply with the response that people have to Jesus in other places. What are they doing in Capernaum when he heals someone? or when he casts a demon out of a man in the synagogue, they're bringing people for him to heal. They're bringing people who are afflicted by diseases and demons, and they're bringing them to him so that he can heal them. And so Jesus' response is really interesting. They want him to depart, and he's like, all right, bye. It says, it transitions then to talk about the man. It says that as he was getting into the boat, that's, they say, depart from the region. And then it says, as, it's just matter-of-factly, as Jesus was getting into the boat. They don't want him there, and so clearly he's like, all right, I'm gone. And so you get, then get this major contrast between this man who's been uh, delivered from the control of these demons and his people. And what's so wonderful here is he shows himself to be a true follower of Jesus in the way that Mark has described followers of Jesus. Look at this. And as, uh, as they began to depart, 
or sorry, as he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. Do you remember that phrase that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks? Starts off with Jesus taking his disciples up on the mountain, calling them to himself that they might be with him. Notice that that is what this man wants. He wants to be with Jesus. The word begged is used here a lot in this passage as well. The demons begged Jesus not to torment them. They begged Jesus to allow him to, uh, to allow them to go to the pigs. The people of the region begged Jesus to depart. The man begs him that he might be with him. All of this, again, is showing Jesus' authority and, and recognition in some ways of Jesus' authority. But it says he does not permit the man. Rather than allow the man to accompany him, he sent him back to his people in order that he might proclaim among them the great things that God has done. It's interesting that his defilement has been removed. The evil that had controlled him, he's been delivered from that. And now, it's so interesting, I was thinking about this, Jesus sends the man back to be restored in his community. Jesus has overcome his defilement. He's overcome the fact that, he himself, that, that this man was uncontrollable. Even, he couldn't even control himself. Jesus has delivered him from that. And now he's removing his isolation. He's sending him back to his people, but he's doing it ultimately that he might speak the truth about this man. But I did think there's something beautiful there that Jesus, he heals physically, but he's also desiring and sending this man that he can be healed relationally, sending him back into his community. Here's the key point. Although Jesus refuses to allow the man to come with them, he commissioned him to proclaim the salvation that he had come to bring into the world. He sends this man as a missionary back to his people. And again, this pictures that Jesus recognizes this man is a true follower. What has Jesus already done with his, his followers? He's commissioned them. He sends them out. He sends this man out to his people. And so there's this beautiful picture of what's coming, what's going ahead. And Jesus, this man is going to go and proclaim Jesus. And I love this. This is Mark, one of Mark's little subtle things that he does. Jesus says, go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. What does the man do? He goes and proclaims in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Lord, but I think it's also showing us that this man has some understanding of Jesus. He's not just saying there was this guy who did this stuff. He recognizes that God is at work in and through Jesus. All right, I want to just make two observations of what I think Mark wants us to think. If we want to think, what does Mark want the audience reading, studying, thinking about this passage? What does Mark want? Two things, I think. Mark wants his readers to see that Messiah, who calms the storm, remember we're thinking of this section, it's related to the prior section. He wants his readers to see that Messiah, who calms the storm to deliver his people Israel, that's what you see in Psalm 107, is willing to bring his salvation to the Gentiles as well. That's something that we need to see here within this passage. It's this little hint of where things are going to go. How when the church age begins, the gospel is going to expand to all peoples and nations. This is a, a little glimpse into that. And the things mentioned in this account very much recall a passage in Isaiah chapter 65. Look at Isaiah 65, referring to pagan peoples here in Isaiah. The Lord speaking says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. 
I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. This passage from Isaiah This incident in Mark 5 very much recalls this prophecy that the Lord himself is going to go and be sought by those even who did not seek seek him. He's going to go to them. We see Jesus doing this, coming to deliver this man. The salvation of this man and his commissioning for ministry, again, it's this preview of what's to come. By the time Mark writes his gospel, the message is already going out among the Gentiles. So the question for Mark's readers is, will they, like this man, receive it? Or will they, like many of the other Gentiles in their surrounding culture, reject it? Like those in the region where the man was from. I think the second thing that Mark wants, he wants his readers to recognize who Jesus truly is. He's the son of the Most High God. And to respond to him in the manner of the man, rather than that of the people of the region. This account, again, it presents Jesus and it provokes a response. How will people respond to who Jesus is? Mark, it would be Mark's desire that these, those reading this account, they would respond like the man. What does he do? He begged him that he might be with him. He wants us, he wants his readers to respond to Jesus in the way this man did. To believe in who he is. To want to be with him to follow in the commission that he gives. He does not want us to be like the people of the region who beg Jesus to depart from their region. They're unbelievers. They want nothing to do with Jesus or his power. As I was thinking about this and kind of like, what's a concluding thought? What's something for us to take home from this account? I was thinking, it just got me thinking about this. Not everyone responds to the power and authority of the Lord Jesus in the same way or for the same reason. And yet, everyone must respond to the power and authority of the Lord Jesus. Look at the demons. Think about the demons. The Lord constrains or permits them according to his own plans and purposes. They have to respond to his authority. And so he constrains, prevents, or permits, allows things. They know who he is. If you're here and you know something about Jesus, that doesn't mean that you have a saving knowledge of Jesus. You may have heard the name of Jesus all your life. Look at James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons properly knew who Jesus was, but their, their bowing before him was compelled by who he was. It wasn't done out of a willingness. It wasn't done out of worship. And so we need to recognize, though, that Jesus' power and authority, God is sovereign over things. All the things that happen, happen ultimately under, or I should say nothing happens outside of the sovereign authority of God. However, that does not make God the cause of evil. It does not make him the cause of evil. There are what we call in philosophy the idea of secondary agents. Okay, we have the ability to make choices. Demonic beings have the ability to make choices. None of those choices, however, occur outside the umbrella of God's sovereignty. We must recognize that although God is not the cause of evil, he does permit it for his plans and purposes. 
and yet evil forces are subject to his authority, and they will ultimately be subject to his judgment. Something that we have to see and that those, the demons in this account ultimately recognize. And another thing that, that should give us comfort is that ultimately then their activities can only serve the ultimate goal of accomplishing God's plans and purposes. If God's plans and purposes will be accomplished, the demonic activity cannot thwart and oppose the will of God. The, the death of Jesus is a perfect example of this. It's, it's orchestrated by Satan. It's carried, out, um, it's carried out through evil opposing him. And yet, what does it do? It's the ultimate means by which God accomplishes salvation for his people. So we see this. The demons recognize his power and authority, but, but they, they're constrained or permitted by it. Then we have the example of unbelievers. To unbelievers, the Lord is a threat to their way of life. His power and authority, it's a threat to an unbeliever's way of life, and therefore he must be rejected. That's what you see in the example of these people. Unbelievers in this account, again, they show they're unwilling to submit their lives and conduct to Jesus' authority and power. They don't want his saving power. They, they actually preferred the demon-possessed man in their region than Jesus. And so what we see here is that those who reject Christ, ultimately they do so out of a love of their own sin and ultimately of themselves. I think that's something that we can really take from this. Look at Romans 1.21. Romans 1.21, looking at sort of like the fallen condition of mankind in the rejection of the knowledge of God that's present within creation. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It also says in Romans 1 that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The lie that unbelievers tell themselves that we all believed at one time and that we still struggle with to a certain degree is that God is not God, we are God. We're little gods, and we get to make choices in our lives. We determine what's good and right. We determine what's best for us. We are the ones who are in control of our lives. To come to Christ means a recognition that you lose possession of your life. Your life becomes his life because his life is given to you. It becomes your life. So these unbelievers here in this account, they're unwilling to let Jesus, in a sense, come into this region and transform it. He, what he does in this man, in many ways, he could have done in that region. But he ends up doing it in this one person because these people reject him. That's what happens for unbelievers. Finally, this for believers. Jesus' authority and power, Jesus' authority, it's a blessing. For an unbeliever, it's a threat. For a believer, it's a blessing. A blessing that brings deliverance and compels joyful obedience. You see that in this man. He wants to go with Jesus, but Jesus says, no, I want you to go and do this. And though his maybe heart would have been to go with Jesus, he follows after joyfully what, and, and does what Jesus calls him to do. It's this beautiful picture. Jesus is the one that comes to him and exercises his power and authority to rescue and deliver him. And so you see this beautiful deliverance for this man. This is what happens for all believers. Jesus delivers us from being enslaved to sin. He brings light into our darkened hearts and minds. The light of the gospel comes in, and we are set free. And then having come to faith, our desire is to be with Jesus, like this man. Believers also, again, we recognize the Lord's instruction to us. They're ultimately for our good and for his glory. 1 Peter 1, 17-19 says, If you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
Conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot and blemish. Seeing God as our Father and knowing that the payment for our sin has been made, we recognize that we are ransomed. Our life is no longer our own, but we're brought into a new family with a new Father who loves us and who instructs us for our good and for His glory. Like the demons, every knee is ultimately going to bow before Jesus. In it, being in His presence, that will be compelled So even for those today who reject him, they will bow before the Lord Jesus. How much better then is it for us to bow before him in humble submission and worship and recognition of his power and authority as Messiah, as the Son of God Most High? That is the proper response to who Jesus is. May God grant to us that we would receive his grace and that we would walk in joyful obedience to him. Let's pray. Father, uh, we recognize, Lord, that we live in a world um, that is marked by evil. Father, I thank you then uh, that in light of this account, we see Jesus' power and authority over evil and his love ultimately for his people. Father, I just thank you uh, that Jesus is our shepherd who's with us even as we recited Psalm uh, 23 uh, this morning. Uh, You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our heads with oil. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. We'll dwell in your house forever. Thank you for those wonderful truths, Lord. Thank you for the reality that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so, Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters. Would you protect us and our church from evil? But, Lord, would you also remind us that you have commissioned us, like this man, to go out into the world. So we don't hide away from that which is evil, but we're sent out into the darkness with the message that is ultimately the light. And I thank you, Father, that you equip us in Christ. You give us his life. You've indwelt us by the power of your spirit. Father, use us for your glory. Thank you for your word. And and as we've heard it now, Lord, may we sing passionately as your worshipers. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.